0: The following message is by Pastor Travis Cardwell. This sermon was preached at Baptist Church of the Redeemer. For more sermons, please visit bcredeemer.org. So here's where we are in the Sermon on the Mount, if you're just joining us. Uh, Jesus began by outlining the blessed character of his followers, uh, his disciples. Okay, so we, we call that, that, that section the Beatitudes. And then he talked about after that what that character kind of would attract. So in one way, that character is going to attract persecution. You're going to be persecuted. There's, when you shine that light, there's going to be those that are opposing you. But then it will also attract those that, that, that are attracted by it and will praise God. So both persecution and praise to God. And then now he begins what really is the body of the sermon, the main section of the sermon and uh, I think you, you get some hints about that by this kind of a linkage there with law and the prophets there in verse 17. And if you flip over to chapter uh, 7, verse 12, you see there he kind of ends that section with law and the prophets. And, so, so, and then he concludes. So you have this centerpiece that's bracketed off with law and prophets. That's Jesus' focus. Now he's trying, to, he's trying to clarify what this movement is that he's beginning and leading, especially as it relates to God's law. So what relationship does the Old Testament have for Jesus' followers? How are they to view the law and the prophets? Is Jesus in line with what's all gone before him? Or is this something completely new? Does Jesus' ministry contradict the Old Testament scriptures? Is he going to change them all up or totally repeal them? And then how are we as followers of Jesus today to understand the role that God's law plays with the Old Testament in general and in the specific laws contained in the Old Testament in our life today. That's what this passage is, is about. So, so we need to put on two hats. We need to put on our thinking cap because, make no mistake, Jesus is a theologian, and he's going to want us to think hard about his words, and we, we need to do that. D.A. Carson says this is maybe one of the most difficult passages in all the Bible. But we also need to put on our miner's hat And go looking for treasure here, for for reward, because it's here. We're not on just a quest for information, but treasure, for gold. There there is help here for your daily obedience and and your daily satisfaction and daily struggle with sin and confidence in your eternal condition if you're a believer. Friends, Christ is here. So here's my attempt at just summarizing the passage into a sentence The main point of the sermon, the main point this morning is this. I think that Jesus has fulfilled the law for his people so that we might walk in obedient love toward God and others. Jesus has fulfilled the law for his people that we might walk in obedient love toward God and others. And I just want to make three observations from the passage this morning that are going to demonstrate that. So they're listed in your bulletin. If you want to follow along, they're listed there and you can take notes if you like. Number one, I want us to see Jesus upholds the authority and infallibility, the trustworthiness of the Old Testament. Okay, he upholds the the Old Testament. Number two, I want us to see that he fulfills the Old Testament. He fulfills the Old Testament. And then number three, that he calls his disciples to new covenant obedience. If you just want to put in parentheses there, that just means what I mean there is obedience from the heart. Obedience from the heart. And then next week, Lord willing, we're going to begin to unpack some illustrations of what that looks like um, as we go through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, relating to loving God and loving our neighbor. But first, he gives us this foundation, beginning with his view of the Old Testament. So, number one, Jesus upholds the authority and infallibility of the Old Testament. That word infallible just means it won't lead us astray. It, it's not gonna, It's like a guardrail on our life. It's not gonna, we're not going to go off the cliff. Now, you notice I'm saying Old Testament as we go through these, the, these, these points because that phrase, law or prophets, that he mentions there uh, in verse 17 is a catchphrase to, to refer to the entire Old Testament. So, the law... Or the Torah refers to refers to more than just uh, commands, or even the Ten Commandments. It's a it's a, this entire genre, God's God's law, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, and then and, then what the prophets are doing is, and, and even in the writings, is they're taking that Torah, that law, and applying it to God's people. They're they're preaching it, so you see them telling. So calling them back to repentance, back to the law. But you also see the prophets foretelling. So actually predicting by the Holy Spirit the, the future. And so, so Jesus is referring to this whole thing, the whole Old Testament, when he, when he refers to the law or the prophets not being abolished. And, and, and we have to ask the question, well, why is he even saying this? Why is he taking this defensive posture? And I think we have to know it's because he's being accused of abolishing the law and the prophets by his ministry, like why would he be accused of that? Well, maybe it's because of the way he speaks about his own authority. So he doesn't, he, like other teachers, he doesn't just quote texts. He can say, I say unto you. That's different for, for a, a, a Jewish scribe or for a teacher. Uh, apparently, early in his ministry, he, he changes up or, or um, redefines the food laws. So in Mark 7, we see him make all foods ceremonially, ceremonially clean. Or just think about all the squabbles Jesus has over with the Pharisees over the Sabbath. Over whether or not this is work or not. Or whether he should pick this grain or not. Or heal this person or not. And then as you read the rest of the New Testament, you see how the apostles um, assume that this sacrificial system of, of killing animals and pouring out their blood has ended. Just go read Hebrews 8. Go read Hebrews 10. So there's this, this growing suspicion that this man who says things like, I can forgive sins... Is a little off, particularly off from the Old Testament. Maybe he's contradictory to it. So look at it again with that in mind, kind of that accusation. Don't think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So, notice Jesus saying, I'm not doing this, I am doing this. We'll say more about what he is doing in a second, but right now let's focus on what he's not doing. Clearly he says, I'm not abolishing the law and the prophets. Notice how he points to the enduring value of the Old Testament when he says, until heaven and earth pass away, these things are valid and unchanging. The law is going to be unchanged until it is all accomplished. Their heaven is not like the abode of God where we go to heaven. This is a reference to the sky. So earth and sky, when those things pass away, that's how Jesus uses it later in Matthew 24 on the Mount of Olives. Heaven and earth will pass away. My words will never pass away, he says there. So, so this is, I think, synonymous. The heavens and new earth passing away with what he says they're all being accomplished in verse 18. So this is, this, is, this is more than just his ministry of life, living a sinless life, dying on the cross, and being raised from the dead. Although it includes that, but Jesus has something, he has the, the last days in mind here. Until the last day, he says, this text is going to endure. And it endures, Jesus says, perfectly, without error, unchanged by man. So if you, if you, you know an iota is, or a dot will pass from the law, so the, the iota is the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet. It's, it's usually translating um, the Hebrew letter yod, which looks like our kind of English apostrophe, just a little dot. And then the dot refers to basically like a little stroke of the pen, a stroke of, of the letter, which um, just you, you, if you 're not looking carefully or you don 't know Hebrew you just miss it i mean it 's just this this little it looks like a decorative um, like a, even maybe a, a drop of ink fell but if you if you remove that if you if you change that, um, it can completely change the meaning of a text so think of like the capital English letter f and then the letter p now those are similar right but but they have different meanings spell different words like lowercase c lowercase e similar similar thing here and so he's saying that if these things were to change it would remove the authority behind god's word it's no longer reliable so deuteronomy 6 4 for example if you were to change one of those little iotas or dots instead of saying the lord is one it would say the lord our god is another and then if you were to do that with Exodus thirty-four, fourteen, instead of do not worship another god, you would have do not worship one god. So that's pretty important. Some of your autocorrect. Sometimes when I'm typing the word wife, it'll autocorrect to wide the F and the D. Like, that's bad, right? You don't want that. Like, like it matters. Autocorrect can be bad. We won't get off onto that. So you want to get the correct letters there. It's a big point Jesus is making here in this sermon. Uh, and, 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 and really, what he's doing is not contradicting the Old Testament scriptures at all. He's actually affirming them and their enduring application until the end of the age. He's actually challenging the interpretation and the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. So this is, the, this is the context for the sermon. He, he's, he's not contradicting. He's challenging what they're, they're teaching. So he says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same is called least in the kingdom of heaven. That's not a shot at the law. That's a shot at the application of the law. So, so think, for example, how the Pharisees applied the, the command to love your father and mother. Well, they, they said, yes, the Bible says that, but they also allowed for personal resources to be declared as dedicated to God. Corbin. So they wouldn't have to support their parents in need with their money. So the the Pharisees would also add to the law and impose external laws on others. So Jesus isn't contradicting the law, but he's affirming its authority and its divine inspiration and its enduring worth. He says in the Gospel of John, the scripture cannot be broken. John 10, 35. So brothers and sisters, I just want us to see how Christ views the Old Testament. That faith in Jesus is not simply a New Testament red letter faith. The entire body of Scripture is what God intends for us to have and to benefit from and to believe. So the law and the prophets show us who God is and all of his nature and his character, his miraculous power and his holiness, his grace and his love. Jesus doesn't say, guys, it's really not that big of a deal. Feel free to just unhitch all this law and these crazy stories about floods and giant fish from your faith. That that's doesn't really matter that much. No, he says, I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets. They're true. They're valid. They're all real. And they're all about me. So, beloved, I hope you will give yourself to studying the Old Testament I hope that you'll, you'll, you'll understand why we want to preach through the Old Testament book by book at our church. Because it's, because it's God's word and it testifies to Jesus himself and his righteousness. Paul says in Romans 3.21, But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So God's righteousness is, The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The law isn't a ladder to climb to get righteous. But it is something that bears witness to God's righteousness. In particular, it bears witness to Christ. So it's one big arrow that points us to Jesus. It doesn't provide righteousness. It shows us where to find it and that we need it. So, friend, one effect of studying the Old Testament or studying the law is that you'll see just how much you need God. Paul told the Galatians, and listen, I'm going to go through a couple of texts that Paul is going to list here, and I would just encourage you to jot those down and just think about those later because we there are just it's loaded with helpful things. So Galatians 3:23. Now he says, "Before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed." So then the law was our guardian. Other versions would say schoolmaster, tutor, until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. So that's, the, that's the purpose of the law. So, friend, we don't relax the standards of the law because we can't relax God's standards, God's, God's holiness. There are no loopholes in God's character. His righteousness and blazing glory make the sun look like a birthday candle. We, we, we would be lying to ourselves to pretend that he's not holy and that we're not broken and rebellious and sinful. We haven't fallen short of God's glory and his standard, and the law reveals all that to us. Paul says it was added because of transgressions, Galatians 3.19. So, friend, have you considered your transgressions, your sins? Have you thought about what God's law reveals about you? He created you to love him and to obey him, and we haven't. We've turned away from him. We've lived our lives for ourselves. We're, We're guilty, all of us, of breaking God's law so Jesus isn't saying, forget all that Old Testament stuff. He's saying, look at it, and you'll see God. Look at it, and you'll see who you are. And look at it, and you'll see me. That's the second truth you want to see here. Number two, Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. So he upholds the Old Testament. It's not going anywhere. It's true. But he also fulfills it. So if Jesus wasn't abolishing or doing away with the Old Testament and its laws, you might expect him to say something like this, I came not to abolish, but to affirm. I, or I came not to abolish, but to more widely publish the Old Testament law. Or to draw more attention to it, or highlight it. But that's not what he says. He says, I have come to fulfill it. It's like if you, if you have a novel... That, that, that tells this story that everyone loves and enjoys. And then one day someone shows up and says, you know, that novel that you like so much is actually about me. And I know that because I wrote it. So, so I'm the main point. I'm the author. So that doesn't make the book, the novel, less valuable. But we actually see it for what it is and what it's pointing to. And it changes forever how we think about it. How we follow the storylines that we were following before. We want to go back and reread it now in light of what we know about the author and the, the main character. So Jesus fulfills the Old Testament kind of like that. I mean, that's a, that's a weak attempt at illustrating how he does it. He does it in multiple glorious ways. Multiple glorious ways Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. Um, we are standing now at the kind of the entryway of that gold mine as we think about, about what that means. Uh, it's so rich. But if you start kind of here in Matthew, and then you work your way out, kind of let the circle go out more broadly, you begin to at least to get a picture of how deep the mind goes. So I think the, the main way that Matthew intends us to, to understand the word fulfill, okay, he uses that word a lot in his gospel, 16 times. 12 of those times out of 16, he says he's referring to the way Jesus fulfills prophecy. So there's a prophecy, a promise about becoming Messiah. Jesus fulfills it with his life. Okay, I think that's a, that's a main way that we see him fulfilling the Old Testament. Uh, so 12 of those times, and just I'll mention a, a sampling. In Matthew 1, it's the fulfillment of his birth through a virgin. In chapter 2, the fulfillment that he be born in Bethlehem. Uh, from Hosea, we learned that he was going to be called out of Egypt. Matthew points to Jeremiah's promise in chapter 2 that, that infants would be slaughtered on his account. Matthew 3.3 3 connects Isaiah's promises that the there would be a prophet in the wilderness who would come and preach about the Messiah's coming. Matthew 10 shows how the Old Testament predicted that Jesus would turn family members against each other. Matthew 26 and 27 shows Zechariah's prediction that the Messiah's disciples would abandon him. And even that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Zechariah 11.13. I could go on. That, that's just a few. A very few little examples just in Matthew. And we could just stop there and marvel at the faithfulness of God in keeping his promises in Christ. But the Old Testament prophesies in other ways as well. Flip over to Matthew 11. Real quick. There you go. Wake up. Matthew 11. Here we are. Verse 12. Matthew 11, verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. I'd love to say more about what all that means for John the Baptist and the before and after, but I really want us to look at verse 13. All the prophets and the law prophesied. I just want you to see it's not just the prophets that are prophesying. It's actually the law as well. The law has a prophetic function that, that we want to we see uh, working itself out. And I think that's helpful for us as we begin to kind of think in our minds, okay, how does Jesus um, fulfill these laws? And, and where does that leave us? So traditionally, if you think about the law, kind of, it's been traditionally described in three categories. The moral law, which deals with these, these character, kind of character traits or things we ought to do that are right and wrong. The civil law, which, which is a portion that describes Israel as a nation, an ethnic nation, how they're to interact with one another. And then the ceremonial law, which is a, the, the, the description of the sacrificial system, which is prescribed in the law. But I want you to see just about that. Let's just look at the sacrificial system. That's more than just law, right? It's prophecy too. It itself is a witness to Christ. And so when Christ says that he fulfills the law, we we certainly want to understand that he's going to render some things obsolete. So after church today, we are not going to go sacrifice animals. We're not, because there's already been an ultimate sacrifice. Uh, We are no longer an ethnic nation. We are now an international spiritual nation called the church. So, so those, 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 those laws that would apply specifically to Israel, they don't apply to us. But we do see some carryover, don't we? We do some, see some carryover in the way that, that God commands certain things for his people that he commanded in the Old Testament commands in the New Testament. Jesus is about to outline some of those things here in Matthew chapter 5. So prophecy, by its nature, is provisional. It, it is, there's a message that comes and is fulfilled. And we're going to see that, and we to just get our minds around that as we think about what Jesus means by fulfilling the law. Another way to think about it is you could say he's fulfilling, particularly as it relates to the sacrificial system, as a type. So, so, so the fancy word is typologically, but just as a, as a type. And listen, you've already, you already know this because you already sang it this morning because you just called Jesus earlier the Lamb of God. Well, you're doing typology when you do that, aren't you? Because you're saying that Jesus fulfills this this ceremony, this, this, this Passover illustration that was that was meant year after year to call people to look back to the time in Egypt when 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 God brought people out of of slavery and this 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 lamb, the spotless lamb was sacrificed and the blood smeared over the doorpost that would cause death to pass over the house. So Israel's looking back to that, looking back to that, looking back. but, But they also understand that it points forward to the ultimate Passover. When God would send his son, the sinless one, the lamb of God, to die as a sacrifice, to shed his blood so that the father's wrath would pass over his people forever. So Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 5, Christ is our Passover lamb. So if you're not used to being in church, you're probably thinking they're singing about lambs and stuff. Okay, so there is some there is some of that we need to understand about what we mean when we say what we how we describe Jesus. It's all over the place in the Bible. Christ fulfills the offices uh, in, in Israel in the same way. So he is—he fulfills the office of prophet. He's the true prophet. He teaches us. He, he calls us to repent and believe. He fulfills prophetic promises. He fills the office of priest. He's the true mediator. He's the faithful high priest. By dying for us and then sitting down as his offering is completed, unlike the other priests, forever. He fulfills the office of king. He's the answer to all of Israel's failed kingdoms and the failed kingdoms that we see even today. He's the true ruler of our lives. He is the true, true temple. This this place, this holy set-apart meeting place between God and man. You know, Jesus says, that's, that's my body. Tear that temple down and three days later I'll raise it up. You're going to do what? He says, no, that temple is about me. The temple is never supposed to be the final meeting place between God and man. I am. It's all about me. I'm the true temple. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 1.20... All the promises of God find their yes in him. All the promises of God, yes in Jesus. That's why it is through him that we utter our amen for his glory. And friend, implied in all of that, and we haven't even we haven't gone through all of them, just a few, all of those types of fulfillment is the glorious truth, maybe the most important for you to hear today, especially if you're not used to, to, to listening to sermons or you're not used to being in church, is that Jesus fulfills the law by keeping it. He fulfills the law by keeping it. He never sinned. He had to to meet the specifications of God, just like the temple had to be made a certain way, the the lamb had to be spotless. He had to meet those specifications of God, and that, that specification was sinless obedience. The second Adam, unlike the first Adam, trusted God and his word. He did it. Paul says in Galatians 4.4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, listen, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. That's Galatians 4.4. Because Jesus was born under the law, his obedience to the law fulfills the requirements of the law that we can't fulfill in our own obedience. We failed every category. And so Jesus redeems us from our disobedience and imprisonment under the law by keeping it himself. We're slaves to sin. Jesus comes forth to break us out of that imprisonment through his righteous life and his atoning death for us on the cross. So he came to redeem those under the law, to fulfill the law. Not just over there, it's like that's a cool story, but for us. He, so another text Romans 8, 3 and 4. Romans 8, 3 and 4. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. Listen. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. You want to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law? You don't need to buckle in and try to obey obey more. You need Jesus. He's the only one who's fulfilled it, and he's fulfilled it for us. For us. He met the righteous requirement of the law so that by faith you could be made righteous. And when I say faith, I I mean putting your trust, putting your hope in Jesus' life that was lived in righteousness, his death as a sacrifice for sin, and his resurrection from the dead. He rose from the dead. I mean turning away from your sin, away from living your life apart from God, in emptiness, in self-sufficiency, in disregard for him. I mean repentance. Repent and believe on Jesus, and God will see you as he sees Christ. The blood will be applied to you. You will be washed and cleansed and made new and given life. And that's what it means to be a Christian, to trust Christ and to live for him. And if you're a Christian here this morning, I just think our application to this truth is primarily to worship Jesus. That's what we're to do. Sometimes we think, okay, what's my do here? It's worship your king who died for you. Enjoy the gold that Christ is for us in this this mind. This text shows us he is glorious. He is righteous. He fulfills the law and the prophets for us. If you, when we savor Christ and enjoy Christ in this way, it trains us for heaven. It shows us how to read the Bible and to love one another. Matthew 13 52, Jesus says, and he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his household treasure that is new and what is old. There's treasure here. Treasure in the Old Testament because Christ is there. So so keep digging. He he fulfills the law in the prophets. Last observation this morning, number three. Jesus calls his disciples to new covenant obedience. And I'm sorry, I'm using some some wordy words today, but I'm hopefully going to define them for us, okay? I had a professor in seminary that said that you, need to, you must regularly ask the question when you're studying doctrine or you're looking at a text. Just, okay, so what? I get it. I see what's being taught here in this truth. But what does that mean for me? How do I apply that? What does that mean now? And so Jesus gives us this so what, I think, in, in verse 19. Whenever he says, Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Well, what's he talking about? He goes back up to what he says, these commandments. See, there's a transition there. He says, therefore, right? And then he goes back to these commandments. Well, which commandments? And I, I think he means the fulfilled law and prophets. The fulfilled law and prophets. Reading and understanding what God's word says to us Christianly, in Christ. And then he really just makes the point in verse 20 for our application, I think. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, we're calling this new covenant obedience. But another way I say it, as I said earlier, is just obedience from the heart. I think that's what surpass or exceeds means. Um, I don't think it is a quantitative difference in the way that you obey. I think it's a qualitative difference. It's a difference in kind. The righteousness is different. So Jesus fulfilling the law on our behalf results in a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now the scribes are these highly trained experts in the interpretation and application of the law. They begin their training as children. And they train all the way up to age 40 when they're ordained. So I would be ready, almost ready to be ordained. Okay? They, they begin their training um, with this, this memorization and they're, they're highly respected kind of throughout their training and particularly after that, that ordination by all the Jews of their day. So when they walk around the, the street in their special robes, people would stand in their honor and call them father and rabbi and master. And then the Pharisees are members of a movement within Judaism that, that were committed to this meticulous observance of the law. So they emphasize tithing and ritual purity and, and Sabbath observance. Now, I want you to see, Jesus isn't saying, now look at these wicked lawbreakers. Okay, In fact, when people heard that there must be a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, they would have gasped. Like, how, how, is, that, how is that possible? But as we read the Gospels, we see where Jesus is... It's kind of showing us really what's behind the Pharisees' righteousness. He points throughout his ministry that their obedience is mainly external. It is a box-checking kind of obedience. It is not motivated out of a love for God and for neighbor. So they are trying to codify righteousness, to, to make it like you know a, a, a book that you just print and plop down and read and you do this it says this if this happens so they had it down to you know there's 246 commands that we're supposed to obey 365 prohibitions and and then they would they would take those and kind of and and have some maybe fences around the the prohibitions and then they would do interesting things with the commands and so we know Moses said you shouldn't divorce so we're not going to divorce unless there's this unfaithfulness well unfaithfulness of course means you know, these other things, adultery. But it could also mean if your wife were cooking and she dropped the dish and, and then it's time to go. Like they would do interesting things like that. They quantified what Sabbath obedience looked like with precise limits on work. So you can work this many hours. You can walk this many yards. You, you can write this many words. You can eat this much food or take this much food out of storage without breaking the Sabbath. And then they impose those standards on others. So these are the original legalists. And just unpacking what that means, let me give you three kinds of legalism that you see evidence in the Pharisees. The first, these are different kinds of legalism, is an attempt to to attain salvation by works. So that's one we're familiar with. like, I'm a legalist if I'm trying to attain salvation by works. Good works gets me pleasure with God and I'm going to be pleasing to him. The second kind of legalism makes new laws, new legal commands that are based on tradition, that are based on interpretation or misinterpretation of Scripture, and then says those laws, those norms, have the same weight as the Bible does. So this kind of legalist would forbid things in the, that the Bible doesn't forbid, just in case they might cause you to be tempted, and that would require things the Bible doesn't require so that you could be on the right path toward obedience. So that's the second type. And the third type of legalism shows itself in kind of a concentration on obedience to law at the exclusion to what we might call weightier matters of the law. So Jesus, he chastised the Pharisees because they would tithe down to the spice rack in their kitchen. But they neglected the weightier matters of the law. They they were low on love and mercy and justice. So there's this loveless obedience, this external compliance for the sake of appearances. And the Pharisees and the scribes fit the bill for those three types of of legalism in different ways throughout the Gospels. And so Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs, pretty on the outside, dead on the inside. He calls them hypocrites. He, He says they are the blind leading the blind. So, beloved, we have to see Jesus is purchasing a righteousness for us, but he's not doing it so that we can beat the Pharisees at their own game. They observe 230 commands. All right, I'm going for 235. I'm doing it. That's my goal for this year. Jesus didn't die to create more skilled legalists. But we can still fall into this so easily, even just in reading our Bible. Why am I reading my Bible? So that. God would love me and be pleased with me. And if I don't do it today, he's not pleased with me. Do you see how subtle that is? That's just legalism. You're just trying to earn your way into God's favor. We, we We do these things sometimes without even knowing it. I'm at church maybe so that God would be more happy with me because of something I did last week. Or maybe we're constructing some kind of norms that we are actually holding on par with Scripture. If you're a Christian, you will vote Republican. If you're a Christian parent, you will homeschool. Because I don't think we see that directly spelled out for us in the Bible, do we? think? Am I a box checker? Think about the just two examples. I could, give, I could think of 20 just in my own life. But, but when you sin, that's a good example. When you sin, what are you most concerned about? I'm talking to believers. If, if you're a believer here this morning, you sin, hypothetically. What are you most concerned about? What's on your mind most? Is it, is it getting caught? Is it being embarrassed by your sin? Is it, is it being exposed to others? Or is it offending God? Is it having your relationship with your heavenly father kind of messed up? And like there being some, some disconnect there because of, because of your rebellion. And you wanting to, with all your heart to just get along with God and make those things right and, and be reminded of the gospel. What do you do when you sin? Another, another thing to think about is when I, when I, when I come to, to worship, or when I'm with God's people, what, what's, my, what's my heart's posture then am i am i here to to worship the king am i here to to serve others around me or is it something that i know that i am supposed to do and then when i get home i'm going to be able to do what i really want to do whatever that is i'm going to sit on my phone or i'm going to i'm going to go watch this thing or i'm going to go do this other thing jesus calling for true obedience from the heart He's not saying, hey, do this on your own. No, he's giving us the heart. He he gives us a new heart. Like, that's what the new covenant points to. That's why we're calling it new covenant obedience. Jeremiah 31, 31 prophesies that we're going to be given a new heart, and the law is actually going to be written on my heart. And that heart's going to give me new motivations. Not perfect motivations, but new motivations, new aspirations. And essentially, a love for God and for my neighbor. So when Jesus illustrates obedience in the next chapters, which we're going we're gonna to walk through in the coming weeks, Lord willing, he's not doing it in an essentially legal way, so we can make our own little book about the law that Jesus is laying down, and we can obey that law. No, those regulations won't cure an evil heart. The only thing that will is, is having being born again by the Spirit through faith in Christ. The world is full of people who, who are saying to themselves, I'm not going to do anything really, really bad, and that makes me good or good enough. But Jesus wants us to obey him out of a heart that loves him and loves others. Later, he's going to say in Matthew 22, 37, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And we've already seen that Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. He has perfectly loved God and perfectly loved neighbor. And that was done for us. And now he's taking out that heart of stone he put in a heart of flesh and he calls us to follow him. And this kind of love-motivated obedience. And then he invites us to fulfill the law. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 13. 13. Verses 8 to 10. Romans 13, verses 8 to 10. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment, are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. You see how this, is, this, this, this grace that he gives us, this righteousness that he gives us, enables us to do what we never could do in our own strength, and our own flesh? That's why he concludes this section in Matthew 7, verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Believers, this is our, our commission. Love God because he has first loved us, and love your neighbor... Just as you have been loved by Christ, this is the righteousness that surpasses even the scribes and the Pharisees. I love how Paul illustrates this in his own life. He was he was himself a faultless Pharisee. But after he met Jesus, he said, All those religious merit badges that I have earned, all the things I had going for me, all the externals, they are rubbish. My new desire is to gain Christ, not, not having a righteousness of my own it comes from the law, but one which is from God through faith in Christ. So Philippians 3.8, indeed he says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. So Jesus hasn't come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. He fulfills it in every way on our behalf. And he gives us new life and the ability to obey, not legalistically and not perfectly, but from the heart, out of a love for God and, of, and for neighbor. And so we're going to see several illustrations of what that looks like in, a, in the coming days. We've already seen what it looks like when a people who have been changed by this gospel of Christ live out this character of God in a dark world. Jesus says you are a city Set on a hill, a lamp that lights up the whole room, salt that preserves and brings flavor and purifies. It's a glimpse of the kingdom of heaven come to earth. And it begins with just understanding the surpassing worth of Christ. He's our never-ending gold mine, our treasure. Let's pray. Let's thank him. Lord, we love you and we're overwhelmed by your goodness to us. Thank you that you you came and you didn't allow us to to remain in our sin that we deserve, Lord. We deserve the wrath of God and you you came to bring us into the family of God. And so, Lord, we, we, we praise you, we thank you, we worship you. Pray that you would give us clarity, Lord, as we as we think through these next, these next weeks and as we think through our own heart. Lord, show us if there's ways that and, and we know there are. That we are, we kind of are external in some of the things that we're doing right now. Lord, just I pray that you would, you would just remind us of your love and mercy. And that we as we would we would be known as those who love others, and we'd be motivated by that true love and mercy that we have received, the new heart that you've given us in Christ. And Lord, we do pray that there's some among us who are are thinking about this and they're hearing it, but they haven't experienced it. Lord, that you would, by your grace, open their eyes and give them new life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. For the glory of God. Baptist Church of the Redeemer seeks to obey Christ in the Great Commission task of making disciples by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can find out about us at our website, bcredeemer.org.